I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week, and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Welcome back. This is going to be a big and important episode. We really want this to be a comprehensive episode for you on cerebral palsy and an episode that you come back to multiple times for review. The topic of cerebral palsy is such a huge and encompassing part of the exam. We covered it last season, but we will use our review of the clinical summary to really help solidify the concepts and pearls of CP. Cerebral palsy is defined as a group of permanent disorders of the development of movement and posture, causing activity limitations that are attributed to non-progressive disturbances that occurred in the developing fetal or infant brain. Disturbances leading to CP in the developing brain may occur during prenatal, perinatal, or early postnatal development, and several factors have been associated with the development of CP. Some examples include things like a cerebral vascular accident, an anoxic event, maternal infection or illness, a neonatal infection, a congenital central nervous system or chromosomal abnormality, prematurity, traumatic brain injury, or hyperbilirubinemia, to name a few. 
In true fashion, the clinical summary breaks things nicely into that ICF model. Primary impairments of body function and structure include aberrations in muscle tone and spasticity, reduced postural control, reduced selective voluntary motor control, and impaired sensory processing. Common secondary impairments of body function and structure include muscle hypoextensibility, joint contracture, skeletal malalignment, impaired force production and decreased strength, and impaired endurance. The above impairments of body functions and structure that Sheila just went through may lead to activity limitations for the child with CP. Children with CP may demonstrate limitations with many activities. Gross motor activity limitations include delayed gross motor skills, mobility limitations, such as the inability to creep or walk, and characteristic gait patterns like ankle equinus, crouch gait, stiff knee gait, or scissor gait. They will also have difficulty with fine motor activities, play activities, self-care activities, and speech and communication activities. Moving on to the final area of that ICF model, participation restrictions. Children with CP may experience participation restrictions in both family life and community activities. Research has indicated that compared with children without disabilities, children with CP participate in fewer social and physical activities. In order to identify participation restrictions, we need to be able to identify the life roles of the child and the types of things the child would like to participate in. Don't forget those other ICF model components like environmental factors that may help or hinder participation for a child with cerebral palsy. Moving on to classification. There are several tools available to help the clinician classify gross motor, fine motor, and communication abilities of children with cerebral palsy. The three main classification scales to know are obviously the gross motor function classification system or the GMFCS. This is the big one. You need to be very comfortable and confident delineating between the levels of the GMFCS. Also, remember age ranges for this matter and there are different skills for different age ranges. So definitely take a look at that. In addition to the GMFCS, there is the Manual Abilities Classification System, the MACS, and the Communication Function Classification System, the CFCS. These three tools provide a profile of relationships between participation, activities of mobility, handling objects, and communication abilities of children with cerebral palsy and can be used for making clinical decisions. We think the GMFCS is a key knowledge area for the exam. The GMFCS consists of classification in one of five levels and is determined by the child's usual performance in home, school, and community settings. Please remember, this is focused on how they usually perform skills, not their best ever performance. The emphasis for classification is on sitting, transfers, and mobility. Remember above, we mentioned those age bands. There are five age bands with descriptions of function for each GMFCS level. The age bands are 0 to 2, 2 to 4, 4 to 6, 6 to 12, and 12 to 18. 
The full GMFCS is available on the Can Child website, and we will link that in the episode description. Print these out and have them available for frequent review. For a quick review on the GMFCS, walking performance after six years of age is as follows. So a GMFCS level one walks without limitations. A GMFCS level two walks with limitations. GMFCS level three walks using a handheld mobility device. GMFCS level four, self-mobility with limitations and may use powered mobility. And a GMFCS level five is transported in a manual wheelchair. The Manual Ability Classification System, the MACS, focuses on upper extremity function. It's similar to the GMFCS in that it has levels one to five to classify the child's typical ability to use one or both hands to handle objects in daily activities. The MACS can be used for children aged four to 18 years and is interpreted in relation to the child's age. Similar to the GMFCS, the MACS uses classifications of level one, which is the child handles objects easily and successfully, to level five, the child does not handle objects and has severely limited ability to perform even simple actions. The full MACS is available online and we will link the website in the episode summary. Last, we have the Communication Function Classification System, the CFCS. This also uses classification in one of five levels and is determined by the child's everyday communication performance using all methods of communication, including speech, gestures, and augmentative and alternative communication. The CFCS classifies communication using sender, the person transmitting the information, and receiver, the understanding of the information, roles, and using familiar and unfamiliar partners. Levels of the CFCS range from level one, an effective sender and receiver with unfamiliar and familiar partners, to a level five, which is a seldom effective sender and receiver, even with familiar partners. The full CFCS is available online. And again, we will link it in our episode summary. Something to to think about as well is just because somebody is a GMFCS level five does not necessarily mean that they're going to be a level five for the MACS or the CFCS. So just keep that in mind as you're going through your studying and reading different cases. A helpful thing to remember is that they are all based on five levels, with one being the least impaired to level five being the most impaired. This will help you organize the three classification tools in your brain. Another tool mentioned in the clinical summary is the functional mobility scale, the FMS. This specifically is a classification tool of a child's functional mobility and takes into account the assistive mobility devices used. The FMS is designed for use with children aged 4 to 18 years. The child's functional mobility is scored on a scale of 6, independent ambulation without an assistive device, to 1, uses a wheelchair. For each of the three specific distances, 5, 50, and 500 yards. The full FMS is available online, and we will link this in our episode summary. The above tools are so important in your preparation for this exam. You will need to quickly be able to classify a patient based on their usual performance into a category. 
Knowledge of a child's GMFCS level is useful for communicating with parents and setting the stage for realistic and collaborative goal setting. The CanChild website offers a great explanation. The probability of ambulation for a child classified at level five is extremely low and very different from children in levels one, two, or three. As a result, the system is extremely useful in terms of intervention planning at the levels of impairment and activity. An emphasis in intervention for children in levels one and five might be health promotion, prevention of secondary impairments, and use of technology and adaptive equipment, whereas intervention in children levels one, two, and three might be focused more on achievement of gross motor abilities. We think an important fact to remember is that the most recent information indicates that GMFCS levels are quite stable after two years of age and children are not likely to change levels even following intervention. Another way to classify CP is their clinical presentation. Typically, this is based on the child's distribution of motor involvement. There are four main categories. So you have your hemiplegia, which is the primary involvement of one side of the body, diplegia, which is primary involvement of the lower limbs with minor involvement in the upper limbs, triplegia, which is predominant motor involvement in three limbs, which usually it's one upper limb and both lower limbs, and then quadriplegia, which is the total body involvement. Impairments of muscle tone are another area of classification. There are various impairments of muscle tone, and there have been a lack in reliability in defining these terms. The clinical summary uses three main types. You have spastic, which is an increase in tone and pathological reflexes, dyskinetic, which is varying muscle tone with involuntary, uncontrolled, recurring, and often stereotypical movements. Dyskinetic is further subdivided into dystonic and choreoathetoic types. Dystonic is a hypokinesia, which is decreased movement, and hypertonia, which is increased tone. Choreoathetoic is hyperkinesia, which is increased movement, and hypotonia, which is decreased tone. Ataxic is uncoordinated movements with abnormal force, rhythm, and accuracy. Moving on to examination, we have discussed this a lot, but examination procedures and tools should be tailored to the child's age, GMFCS classification, child and family goals and priorities, and contextual information obtained during the history and review. Remember that ICF model can help us frame the examination. To review, the first tier of the ICF model is the impairments of body function and structure. We reviewed this earlier, but again, we are hitting this hard today. Children with CP generally have multiple primary and secondary impairments that may impact functional activities and participation. Remember, those primary impairments are things like spasticity, reduced postural control, reduced selective voluntary motor control, and impaired sensory processing. Those then lead to those secondary impairments we reviewed, like joint contractures, decreased strength and endurance, and mobility limitations. Your goal is to examine these areas, and then, of course, your plan of care needs to involve reduction of the impact that these primary and secondary impairments have on the child. Let's review some of the tests and measures you can use to evaluate these limitations in body structure and function. First, 
we have pain. We are always wanting to quantify pain. So using the appropriate pain scale for the child is very important. Some examples might be verbal or visual analog scales, the faces pain rating scale, or the face legs activity crying consolability scale or the FLACC. Moving on to some musculoskeletal tests and measures that may be helpful. Things like looking at their postural alignment, looking at their trunk and extremity flexibility with something like the spinal alignment and range of motion measure, the S-A-R-O-M-M, and then looking at the strength of the trunk and the extremity muscles by manual muscle testing or functional strength testing. For neurological tests and measures, you can use the modified Ashworth for tone and spasticity. The clinical summary recommends the early clinical assessment of balance, the movement assessment of infants, and the pediatric balance scale as good measures for balance and postural control assessments. For selective motor control, coordination, and motor planning, you can use the selective control assessment of the lower extremity, which is the S-C-A-L-E, or the scale. And of course, you can always look at reflexes. It's also going to be important to look at cardiopulmonary function. This can be done using vital signs like heart rate and respiratory rate. For functional tests, the summary recommends using the early activity scale for endurance, the six-minute walk test, or the energy expenditure index. That wraps up body structure and function. We will continue working through the ICF model and move on to activity limitations. The physical therapy examination should include assessment of the child's level of independence in a variety of activities, including bed mobility, transfers, gait, and gross and fine motor activities. The GMFM and the gross motor performance measure, the GMPM, are assessment tools that have been designed for use specifically with children with cerebral palsy. So we recommend knowing them well. The GMFM is an evaluative measure that assesses change in gross motor function over time. The 66-item GMFM can be used in combination with the reference percentiles to evaluate change in gross motor function in comparison to other children in the same GMFCS level. A set of five gross motor growth curves was developed from longitudinal GMFM66 data, and those curves describe the patterns of motor development of children in each of the GMFCS levels. By plotting GMFM66 scores by GMFCS level, estimations regarding future motor capabilities for children with cerebral palsy can be illustrated. Information can assist in predicting future motor capabilities and setting realistic gross motor goals. We feel the GMFM and the growth motor curves are important information and it can all be found on the CanChild website. The GMPM is an observational tool used to assess the quality of gross motor movements in children with CP. Other common tests and measures of activity include gait assessments like the dynamic gait index or the timed up and go, or a more specific analysis using measures of temporal and spatial gait parameters like velocity, cadence, step and stride length, and base of support. Some tests and measures of functional mobility include the PD mobility section, the school function assessment, or the Gillette functional assessment questionnaire. 
The PD also has a self-care skills section that may be useful, and the WeFIM may also be useful. The last tier of the ICF model is that participation component. Children with CP often report decreased participation in home and community activities as compared to same age peers. Some participation measures to know are the children's assessment of participation and enjoyment. There's also a preschool version of this. The PD and the PDCAT, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, and the School Function Assessment. We hope that helps solidify the ICF model. We really want that to become second nature to you during this process. But we also hope this is helping you feel confident with the cerebral palsy diagnosis. Moving on, an important thing to remember is that CP is the result of a non-progressive lesion to the developing brain, meaning that the lesion does not cause ongoing degeneration to the brain. However, primary impairments common in children with CP, such as those things we talked about before, like muscle tone, decreased postural control, these can lead to the development of secondary impairments, such as that decreased strength or decreased range of motion. These secondary impairments are likely going to increase those activity limitations and participation restrictions as the child ages. Something that came up frequently during our preparation were those prognostic indicators that we think are important to remember. Some of them are as follows. Head control by nine months of age, rolling from supine to prone by 18 months, sitting without arm support by 24 months, and reciprocal crawling by 30 months all indicate a critical period in the first 30 months for determining the future potential for independent walking. Let's say that again. Head control by nine months of age, rolling from supine to prone by 18 months, sitting without arm support by 24 months, and reciprocal crawling by 30 months. These may assist therapists in making prognostic determinations regarding future walking ability, but remember, they are not the end-all be-all clinically, but they're something to remember for exam purposes. Children with CP become adults with CP, and it is important to keep this in mind because the development or worsening of secondary impairments with age is an important consideration. Musculoskeletal conditions like hip subluxation or dislocation, contractures, scoliosis, and foot and knee abnormalities are common. Physical therapists should discuss with children and family any issues that may impact future functional activity. This may include education on protection of joints from abnormal stress, management of contractures and inefficient movement patterns, maintenance of appropriate physical activity levels, and considerations of mixed methods of mobility to promote full participation in meaningful life activities during adulthood. These are hard conversations at times, but really, really important. Moving on to intervention, the guts of this episode, we think. First things first, Novak and colleagues completed a comprehensive systematic review of interventions for children with cerebral palsy and provided an excellent resource for the current state of the evidence for pediatric interventions. If you haven't added this to your must-study list, we are telling you now, this is a gold star article. Read it and know it. Make sure you are confident in knowing the interventions proven to be effective, the interventions that were uncertain, and the interventions proved to be ineffective. 
the clinical summary does state that we do not have optimal guidelines regarding frequency, duration, and timing of physical therapy interventions for children with CP, but the dynamic systems theory suggests that multiple practice opportunities are required to develop stable movement patterns. Who doesn't love a good motor learning theory? Frequent opportunities to practice specific goal tasks. This is important. This may be accomplished by embedding activity-focused interventions into the child's daily routine by working with the family to teach them how to best support their child in meeting their goals. Important concepts like variability and flexibility, tasks that require exploration and problem-solving, the just-right challenge, high-frequency, and child and caregiver involvement. We want to talk through some of the specific interventions and the evidence. In terms of gait, body weight supported treadmill training may be effective according to some systematic reviews. Functional electrical stimulation may lead to gait improvements, but the research says that the effect may be similar to activity training alone. The use of AFOs may improve passive and active ankle range of motion, gait kinetics and kinematics, and functional activities related to mobility for children with CP. In all of these areas, more research is recommended to confirm. The evidence related to motor function is similar, where more research is always recommended, but they do state that interventions that focus on practice of functional activities have been noted to lead to improvements in gross motor function. Additionally, constraint-induced movement therapy may be effective for improving hand function and frequency of use of the affected upper extremity in children with hemiplegia. Active impairment-focused interventions are purposeful functional activities that also address specific limiting impairments. Aerobic interventions that have been shown effective for ambulatory children in improving endurance, things like aerobic exercise, bodyweight-supported treadmill training, and cycling. Strengthening activities have been found to improve muscle strength in children with cerebral palsy without adverse effects, such as increasing spasticity or muscle tone. There is limited evidence to support the use of passive range of motion and passive stretching to increase range of motion in children with CP but range of motion and passive stretching may be important to assist in maintaining range of motion in children with CP. So again, limited evidence to support increasing range of motion, but range of motion and passive stretching may be important in maintaining range of motion. Additional research is needed in this area. Stretching of longer duration using serial casting appears to have a short-term effect on increasing range of motion and decreasing spasticity, but additional research is needed to assess the long-term effects of sustained stretching. Finally, let's talk about postural control and balance. Better balance is associated with higher motor abilities, so it is obviously an important factor. Some children with CP have been found to retain immature postural control patterns similar to younger children who are developing typically. These deficits may lead to compensatory strategies to maintain control in sitting and standing. Unfortunately, research on postural control interventions, including adaptive seating devices, use of ankle foot orthoses, and neurodevelopmental treatment approaches have been inconclusive. 
Hippotherapy and therapeutic horseback riding have been shown to be effective at improving postural control and balance for children with CP. It's important to remember assistive devices and technology that may benefit a child with CP. Things like positioning devices, assistive mobility devices, augmented communication devices, access devices, and activities of daily living devices like bath or shower chairs, toilet chairs, and adaptive eating and drinking utensils. Orthotics are something to consider as well. Remember that AFO fact sheet from the APTA. This may be helpful. We are going to wrap up by talking a bit about the medical management of CP. One huge area is spasticity management. Knowing and understanding a child's spasticity management may offer windows of opportunity for one to work more intensely on muscle flexibility, strength, coordination, and function. Things like Botox injections, oral medications such as baclofen, diazepam, and dantrolene, intrathecal baclofen, or a selective dorsal rhizotomy. Make sure you are familiar with the mechanism of all of these medications and procedures and possible side effects as well. Orthopedic management will also likely be a component to care for the child with CP. Through the course of their life, they may have muscle or tendon releases, tendon transfers, or osteotomies. Some may even undergo the more complex operation like the single event multi-level surgery, also known as the SEMLs. That was definitely a longer episode for us, but we really wanted to give you an episode that would help you feel confident with the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. We hope this is an episode that you come back to a few times to solidify the concepts you need to know for test day. Friday will also be a longer episode as we tackle all of the CP cases from the Case Files book. This is a big week. We are happy you're here. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.